Cameron reckons there's too much corruption. Is that how wars start? MI5's on high alert as the new IRA recce UK streets. The new first sea lord with an intray full of problems. And Invictus Games, is it more than just a game? Makes me cry. Woke up this morning, had a little cry. Feel like crying now. Yeah, it's brilliant. Today in London, David Cameron has been hosting the first global anti-corruption summit. The Prime Minister's aim is to step up global action to expose, punish and drive out corruption in all walks of life. He started in his own backyard with plans to stop the flow of dirty money through the London property market. But corruption is not just about money, it's also about morals. I'm joined by the broadcaster and journalist Robin Lustig and by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Good afternoon. Um, Robin, um, how big is corruption and who does it? <laughs> well, the easy answer is it's huge and everybody does it. Um, the more difficult answer is that it's clearly a bigger problem in certain countries. I think as a rule of thumb you can say a couple of things. Corruption is a particular problem in countries which have a huge amount of natural resources, particularly oil, because there is a lot of wealth available there. It is also a problem in countries which have large defence budgets because defence contracts tend to be very large indeed and when you have a very large contract you have a very large opportunity for people to skim money off the top. The other thing one has to bear in mind of course is that corruption always involves two parties. It's not only a matter of people taking money that they shouldn't be taking, it's also a matter of people offering it to them and I think that's sometimes forgotten. Christopher, David Cameron has said before this conference that the evil of corruption reaches every corner of the world. Um, do you believe that corruption and war are inextricably linked? Actually, I, I think they are in certain circumstances and very obvious circumstances. Um, for example, um, there are not many places that the United Kingdom forces haven't gone to war in let's say, the past 50 or 60 years where there hasn't been enormous corruption within those organisations, within, within those places in which they've gone to war. And if you look at, at the moment of the British forces in, in some, like, I think it's 22, 23 uh, uh, countries at the most operational at the moment, 19 of them, 19 of the 22, 23, have very, very high corruption allegations against them. Mm, Robin Lustig, we all know what David Cameron said now about Nigeria and Afghanistan before this conference. Is corruption in one country just simply part of another country's way of life? Uh, that's that's an easy argument to make and of course it is often said. I, I say that I suppose in, in light of when we've talked in the past about democracy and exporting democracy. Mm. It, 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 it's complicated, but I, I, I do think that corruption can get embedded quite easily and then becomes extremely difficult to root out. By its very nature, corruption takes place beneath the radar. People keep it secret. I mean, for example, one of the things that David Cameron has been talking about is making property ownership in London a bit more transparent. It cannot be right that corrupt foreign people can buy property in London and shelter behind 
find foreign registered countries, often registered, it has to be said, in British overseas territories, uh, in order to conceal their wealth. I mean, I do find it slightly odd, Kate, that it's UK that that, that pretends that it's in some position to teach other people. The moral authority. Uh, yeah, well, indeed, yeah, because... That was my point about the democracy, really. Well, I mean, democracy and corruption aren't necessarily um, n- not bedfellows sometimes. You can have corruption even in a democracy like the UK. For example, I mean, in which non-corrupt country would you say it was possible to buy a place in the legislature? Many people would look at the British House of Lords and say there are a lot of people <laughs> there who got their place just by giving money to the ruling party. I tell you what, uh, Robin, there's another aspect of this. Which is the biggest money laundering country in the whole of the European Union plus Switzerland? The answer? United Kingdom. Mm, exactly the United so. Kingdom, the biggest money launderers in the, in, the, in the Northern Hemisphere. By going through the colonies, the crown uh, democracies, etc., like the British Virgin Islands, where you can put money and tuck it away, Jersey. You don't have to go very far to do it. Quite. So do you think, Robin, uh, I mean, obviously the Prime Minister taking the moral high grounds and all of this, do you think that any moves to, to rid certain countries or reduce the incidence of corruption then will have any impact on the stability of the country and the peace, therefore? Well, it's interesting you use the word stability because I do think that a lot of countries which suffer from unrest, I'm thinking at the moment of the Arab uprisings of the last five years, started in part as protests against corruption. There is nothing that makes people more angry than the impression that their rulers are stealing money from them rather than spending it on things like education, health services, roads and bridges, which would be a benefit to everybody. You look throughout the Arab world and indeed in many other countries where there is considerable instability, considerable unrest. John Kerry, the US Secretary of State this morning at this London conference, talked about the influence of corruption on terrorism. It makes people very, very angry and rightly so. And this is where you get the connection that I would make with warfare. Not solely warfare on on interstate warfare, but warfare where you actually have to put boots on ground, using that phrase. And therefore, it's boots on ground because you're going against organisations, whether it's government or otherwise, that you oppose. And that is usually governments and organisations which you oppose, which are kept in place by corruption. Okay, Robin, best case scenario, what do you think can come out of this uh, this conference? I think transparency is the best disinfectant. I do think that if the UK and some of its overseas territories do make real moves to um, Well, the British Virgin Islands are already sort of saying no way. There is a problem there. I'm not an expert on exactly how much power the UK government has over its overseas territories. I find it difficult to believe that it couldn't use a little bit more muscle to persuade its territories to uh, to come clean about these kinds of things. So, sort of cautiously optimistic? I, I think it's moving in the right direction. I think it's going to be very slow. I think it's going to be very difficult. I also think it's going to be impossible to root out altogether. It's like saying we're going to abolish greed. Can't do it. Robin Lustig, thank you. Sit with Still to come, no ships, no officers. It can't be much fun for the new first sea lord. Invictus Games, who wins when no one loses? And what does Putin think of Trump? MI5 has increased the level of threat from Northern Ireland to related terrorism in Great Britain from moderate to substantial. It means an attack on Britain is a strong possibility. Well, let's talk to Northern Ireland commentator Chris Ryder. Hello, Chris. Good to talk to you today. Uh, There hasn't been an attack from Irish Republican terrorists on Britain for 15 years now. What has changed? Well, the security services seem to have come to the conclusion 
that the dissident Republicans are now in a position to mount an attack. They said, uh, until now in the threat assessment, that there was an ambition to mount attacks in the mainland. Now they seem to have changed that assessment to say that, that uh, there's a strong possibility of an attack. And I think that's based on uh, examination of recent uh, activities here in Northern Ireland by the, the dissident groups. They're, uh, obviously, you've got their hands on some explosives. They killed a prison officer uh, a couple of months ago. Um, they have uh, used AK-47 rifles on a couple of attacks, and there have been efforts to set off uh, radio control devices and things of that sort. They're obviously picking up some of the expertise from old IRA, uh, people who, who uh, are opposed to the peace process, and then they're bringing on and training their own people uh, to carry on this campaign. It's also worth noting that they're heavily involved in uh, gangster activities in Dublin, and the, the guns used in some of the feuding in Dublin between drugs, gangs and other uh, groups uh, have, have been traced back to dissident Republicans and dissident members. Mm. You say that they've recruited people to carry on the campaign. Do you think that the objectives, were there to be uh, some kind of attack on Great Britain, the objectives of the new IRA are the same as they have always been by distant Republicans? Well, you see, there's, there's a hardcore Republican element who uh, believes that uh, the IRA gave up too early, uh, that, that the fight has to go on, that the only uh, logical uh, conclusion is a united Ireland. Now, all the political realities are that even Sinn Féin, which still pays lip service to that concept, is now working a protection of settlement. It understands that as a result of the Good Friday Agreement, the uh, possibility of a united Ireland is shut off until a majority of unionists in the North give their consent. But there are still a, a small, violent minority in the Republican uh, uh, mindset who believe that they have to carry on the fight, that uh, it is a good fight, and that uh, uh, there, there's no way that uh, it can be let go. We talk a lot, of course, about why young people join so-called Islamic State. Why are people still joining Irish Republican terror groups? Are they old people, young people? Who are they exactly? You know, I think one of the most worrying things is that they're attracting some young people. Um, there's a great overlap between patriotism and crime, particularly in the old troubled areas. And uh, I mean, a priest has said recently that the dissidents have issued threats against 25 people in North Belfast that he knows about. So they're, they're carrying out a policing operation within their own communities. They're trying to uh, subvert the activities of the PSNI. They maintain community control in this way, and they recruit young people, first of all, for taking riding, and then they, they, they develop them into uh, potential terrorists. And as older people, uh, some of them ex-Pyra, who don't agree with the peace process, who are now fueling the flames, bringing on mm. these young people and trying to carry on this fruitless campaign, this volatile campaign for another generation. Uh, Chris Ryder, our defence analyst Christopher Lee has been listening to what you've been saying. Um, Chris, it's interesting, isn't it, if you think about going when we went back to the IRA when they became more political, that was the, that was the birth of the provisional IRA who sort of stepped away and said, no, we can't do this. We're in, in some ways, in a small way, we're seeing the same sort of thing now. People saying... Yeah. Uh, that, that we're, we're not going to accept the organisation. So yes, you go that, to the streets of... That's right. You see, uh, in, in the 1960s, Republican, Republicanism, the United Ireland cause, was nourished by a very small, eccentric minority of Republicans. There was no mainstream support for it. The Troubles, of course, changed that. Uh, but uh, after the years of the Troubles, 
the, the Republicans had to come back to the point that they couldn't coerce the Unionist majority of Northern Ireland into a United Ireland against their will. The two governments recognised that. That was the foundation stone for the Good Friday Agreement. And there still remain the small pocket of, of Republican militants and dissidents who don't accept that, who don't accept the democratic settlement, and who believe that they've got to carry that on. And they're being charged up emotionally by the fact that this is the centenary of the Easter Rising, from which they all claim their legitimacy. So they're, 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 they believe they're carrying on a good fight, uh, despite all the political odds against them, despite the, the obvious damage it does to the community, uh, and despite uh, the, 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 all the political realities that point against it. All right, Chris Ryder, good to talk to you. Thank you for your time today. There's a new man in the top job at the Royal Navy. Admiral Sir Philip Jones has been the first Sea Lord for about a month now. So what's in his entree and what about the man himself? Well, let's talk to someone who knows these things. Military analyst and naval historian Eric Grove. Hello, Eric. How are you? Hello. All right, thank you. So uh, what can you tell us about Admiral Sir Philip Jones? Well, he's a very good officer. I mean, he's ticked virtually every box. I first knew him when he started at Dartmouth in 1978, and he's been upwardly mobile ever since. He was one of the graduate entries. He read geography at Oxford, I think, Mansfield College, and uh, and he, he fought in the Falklands War uh, on, on board HMS Fearless, the assault ship. Uh, and then he went on, he's been captain of a couple of frigates, and he's had virtually every major job. I mean, um, he, he helped organise the Amphibious Task Group when it went to West Africa. Uh, he, he commanded uh, uh, the fir- the, a first stage, I think, of Operation Atalanta, the anti-piracy, EU anti-piracy operation. He's had all the various commands coming up to being for, for Sea Lord, and he's also an extremely nice person. So when you, when you met him way back when, did you think he's going right to the top, that man? Well, it's, always, it's hard to say, really. Sometimes people surprise you. And, and, and sometimes not, but I think he's always shown he's always shown himself to be extremely competent. And unlike some extremely competent people, he does it in a very nice and se- almost charismatic kind of way. So I think he stands the he stands the navy in very good stead. Also, the fact he's a surface officer, a surface ship officer, and some of the main items on the agenda at the moment are the type the type the Type 26 frigate program, Global Combat Ship, and the Moral Steer frigate, the Type 31. Mm, and also the Type 45 destroyers? Uh, trying, to get, uh, trying to get the problem with the diesels fixed, yes. <laughs> Although, as I said before, you know, I mean, uh, w- w- we know understand what the problem is. It's the interface... Bi- between the gas turbines and the diesels. Mm. The long-term solution will be putting new diesels in at refit, more powerful ones. Uh, but I think that uh, I think there are, as I said before, there are workarounds. Yeah, we, we often hear this uh, this comment that there are more admirals in the navy than active ships. Um, well, I suppose any organisation like this, I mean, the, the uh, it has a, a sort of a managerial class, if you like. I mean, yes, there are. A number of admirals, but the number has come down. There's been quite a lot of ch- of changes in the in the upper echelons of the um, of the navy, and the number of admirals has declined. I see Christopher Lee here, sort of having a little laugh at what you're saying. There. Well, the number of admirals have come down, saving the number of ships. I mean, the Type 45, <laughs> the finest destroyer in the world. Even the Americans admit that. And clank, clank, clank. They were limping home and still are. Can anybody find a dry dock so that we can cut open the side and do things? That's about a four or five year project. The other thing, Eric, is that one of the biggest problems, I think, is manpower. There's always, always been manpower. How do you find manpower to have a full Navy anyway? And we've got, at the moment, a deficit, a, surp- a deficit of RN officers of 110 
110 and 860 uh, ratings. That is a big deficit for any Navy to handle. That's right, especially when one is thinking of expanding. I mean, if we, if we don't have enough people for the current fleet. I actually am a member of a working party. We're reporting to the Navy board next week on how perhaps the Navy might change the way it does its business, change its leadership style, so it can what encourage... What will you say, Eric? Well, I mean, the Navy has shown flexibility in the past. Well, just over 100 years ago, it changed a lot of things in order to uh, allow itself to, to, to expand before the First World War. There are certain aspects of the current leadership style in the Navy which are, frankly, old, old-fashioned. Like what? Not, well, I mean, if you looked at that programme about, um, you know, about the people at Raleigh, I thought, I thought that many of the people who were chucked out probably had some potential in the modern Navy. When it it's very. It's a very geeky job. It's being. In, it's being in front of a screen. It's not. It's not pulling sails. And what we're going to recommend, and it'll be interesting to see if the Navy Board accepts it, is that there, there should be some changes and more attention paid to the whole leadership style within the Navy and the kind of people that we wish to hang on to. Is it good to be in the Royal Navy at the moment, or to be thinking about signing up? I think so. Yes, it's quite an exciting. F- it's quite an exciting future. The, the new aircraft carriers are coming into service. There's going to be a whole new generation of frigates. And they haven't got the manpower to to, to, to No, but, ah, but if it's exciting, you might get the manpower. Well, you be we... excited sitting on the dock watching this ship, not floating anywhere, isn't it? Uh, well, I think, uh, uh, he, Christopher, you're a, overstating he's as a, usual. He's a Royal Navy has-been, isn't he? Let's face it. You're overstating as usual. I mean, I mean, yes, I mean, it is, it is, it, it, it is unfortunate, but I wouldn't put it much worse than that, uh, that, that there has been this technical problem. Perhaps it was a step too far, trying to sort of integrate the gas turbines and the diesels. That will be done in due course. Wrong engines. Uh, well, not powerful enough diesels. The gas turbines are OK. It's all going to be very positive when we get the new aircraft carrier, though, isn't it? I think so. I would have thought so. I mean, I think everyone's going to be quite shocked at the size of the new carriers. And in fact, I think that they will become, I think, objects of national pride, actually. Like uh, the aircraft that haven't turned up yet. Uh, the aircraft, <laughs> we will start with... We will You're start with, up to this label I've given you now, the man of axe to grind, huh? We will start with a combined air group, pro- air group probably, of two, of two, of two US Marine Corps squadrons and the British squadron. Do you think, Eric, they would, uh, they would consider taking someone back, uh, maybe uh, Christopher Lee, if they need to <laughs> boost their numbers? Well, well, I'm not sure, actually. Perhaps, you know. I mean, <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks, that's, thanks, but, uh, No, I mean, why not? I mean, uh, I've, I've never been a naval reservist. I'm an honorary chief in the US Navy, but I've never actually been a naval reservist. But it's quite exciting, actually, as an honorary First Sea Lords fellow now, having some part in trying to develop naval policy and we're looking at the, at, the, at the potential for growth and it will be interesting to see how the navy board react we're we're meeting them at lords i think next oh. week uh how they react to our recommendations okay eric grover i look forward to reading and talking about the fruits of your work thank you for your time today the united states and nato have switched on an 800 million dollar missile defense system in romania when it's complete the defensive umbrella will stretch from greenland to the azores protecting nato members from ballistic missiles attacks by rogue nations. Uh, Christopher, just tell us why and how it'll work. If you can imagine something which just crosses Europe in a big arc, and the idea, the principal idea, is that because of the development of rockets, and eventually perhaps even nuclear warheads on those rockets in places like Iran, that Europe has to be protected from the so-called rogue states. And with it comes not just the missile, but with it comes uh, the, the detection systems, so you detect activity going on, you have political uh, analysts saying, look, this is getting worse. Now we know that that, uh, that that rocket system is going to the next stage. We then see it taking off. 
and that's when this 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 system comes into uh, come, comes into something. It's um it 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 comes from the old uh, American ships, the Aegis ships, uh, where they had uh, missile defense systems on board, and they found that they could actually produce these in a landform that, that could actually operate rather well. It's a big system, and so far, the most thing it's done. Is actually got up the frocks of the Russians. Indeed, they're not happy at all about this. Is this because they see this as the new Iron Curtain or the resurrection of an Iron Curtain? It is a Iron Curtain in, 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 in sort of a reverse, and that's got a lot to do with the fact that the Russians and the Americans are supposed to have an agreement that they that they only have missiles that can reach a certain range and you can only have so many of them. And the Russians are actually saying that this missile system is there and it will deter and it will be aimed against the Russian system. And that's not of what course, it's supposed to be for. Of course, the Russians are saying that we are no threat to you. Uh, the Russians are very kind about this. They're saying we're not a threat uh, and that once we get things like Ukraine sorted out and the fact that we took Crimea back and the fact that we're in Syria and you don't want us to be, perhaps we can all get back together and be sort of in, in, in some sort of uneasy conference again. But the truth is um, <clears throat> the Americans have declared that the Russians are in defiance of the treaty, which is only a 2014 treaty, and therefore the Russians believe that the Americans are putting this thing into place in, in, uh, against the Russians themselves. The Invictus Games draw to a close in Florida tonight. The Paralympic-style competition for former and serving members of the armed forces from around the world has been underway in Orlando all this week. Well, let's go there now to Richard Hutchinson and Cassidy Little. They've been covering the events for BFBS. Hello, Richard. What are your highlights so far? Well, Kate, it's an amazing location to have the second Invictus Games. And I think the biggest highlight for me has to be right at the start when in the opening ceremony all the teams came out carrying their flags. It was hugely emotional, as you can imagine, the applause and the, the, the shouting for all the teams as they came in. And to see all the athletes who were competing over the four days lining up at the massive ESPN Wide World of Sports Arena was, was just something else. Mm. Athletes from 14 nations and basically the looks on their faces says it all. No matter where they come within a competition, the, the support for them and the smiles on their faces once they cross that finish line or win or lose is, is, is just amazing and, mm. and it's humbling to see. Must be incredibly emotive. Who have been the big stars? Well, it sounds like a cliche, but really it's everybody taking part. And the thing you notice straight away is that it's not winning the gold, it's not winning the medal that's important. It's, it's beating your personal best and achieving. I spoke to an Australian athlete yesterday who, when I spoke to him, I said, where did you come in your competition? He said, well, I'm proud to say I got seventh place. He said, because now I've got a benchmark, a personal best to beat when I go to Toronto next year. And, and he shook my hand and, and, and said, this is just one of the best things I've ever done. And it's things like that that make you feel that the Invictus Games is really important. And uh, serving petty officer Sean Gaffney, who uh, is a below-the-knee left-leg amputee, has won four medals so far. A gold in heavyweight powerlifting, a gold and a silver in rowing, and a bronze in the relay. And he's been speaking to Chris Kay after winning his first gold. You go out, you hear the noise, and it is, it's background noise. You concentrate, you pick up your friends, your family, the people that are going to inspire you to you know, perform your best. But you also internalise, and you've got to out those people that are clapping and cheering they are there for you but you've got to get your own mindset right so just focus and how important is it to have your uh, friends and family here to support you makes me cry woke up this morning had a little cry feel like crying now yeah it's brilliant <laughs> well this event's not just about the athletes is it richard tell us about the supporters 
the support is so important to the people who've been supporting uh, the athletes and their, their, their journey towards the Invictus Games. And they are here showing support for every single team. When you speak to them in the stands and you say to them, who are you supporting today? The answer always comes back, we're supporting everyone. I'm, I'm supporting my family member here, but I'm shouting and I'm willing on everyone to do their best. And, and that shows through. And, and, and it's important to the athletes because when you see the athletes afterwards, I was speaking to um, the team captain this year and uh, he was saying that looking up in the stands I can see my family there and it drives me forward and here's former Invictus GB captain and 2016 gold sprint winner Dave Henson at the end of the day you know we might have um, some national identity here but the reality is we've, we've come together as one big military family and everyone understands that it's so clear that's the message that we're trying to do is, is mutual support um, across national borders and and that's what you get here so you know, we might have a preference towards a GB win but actually it doesn't really matter well, I said earlier that you were joined by uh, Cassidy Little, a former uh, Marine and amputee yourself, Cassidy. What do these games mean to those taking part? Well, it's proof. It's proof not just to the rest of the world that, that the athletes can, can compete at an international level, but it's proof to themselves so that they are resilient, that they can overcome these injuries and, and still achieve things. And not just, the, not just that achievement, but then to continuously better themselves. And that is the, that, those are the faces that we're seeing coming across the line, whether they're getting the gold or whether they're coming in at the very end, they're still beating what they've done before and it's that sense of accomplishment that these games are given uh, and the closing ceremony of course tonight what's been your favorite moment so far you know i was by the pool yesterday um and i was watching paul weiss take a gold medal and i was really really just chuffed that that he had successfully got this gold medal and then i realized that the the number four swimmer was like leagues behind him leagues behind him and when everybody in the stands realized that this person was still he was he, his name was jesse he was an american he was a bilateral amputee he was still swimming everybody got up on their feet and started cheering and they were chanting the whole pool was screaming jesse as he took an extra two minutes to come across the line that that was my moment that invicted how does it make you feel I'm, to be honest with you, the hairs are, uh, are kind of stood up on my arms right now, just, talk, just remembering that event, that moment. And those moments are happening every second here at Invictus because it's not about proving that you're the best at this in the world. It's about proving to yourself that you can be your own best. Mm. It's incredible. Interesting talking to you about this kind of thing because you've taken on your own personal challenges with Strictly Come Dancing as well. How does it feel when you've been through, you've been in the armed forces, you've suffered a, a career-changing injury, and then you achieve something that you perhaps hadn't thought of before? Well, victory is therapeutic. It's always going to be therapeutic because you're proving to yourself and to the world and to anybody who cares that, that you are better than you thought you were or you can at least achieve what you think you can. Um, so I can, I mean, I can relate to a lot of these guys, but I mean, I'm no athlete. I was never an athlete. A dancer? Yeah, I might be a dancer, but I, I'm certainly no athlete. So well, Casting won't see you there next time then, except as a reporter well, hope, maybe. <laughs> Oh, let's hope so. Fingers crossed. Listen, Cassie Little, good to speak to you. Richard Hutchin, also, thank you for your time. Uh, Christopher, um, we've managed to almost get through a programme without talking about Donald Trump. How can that be? Yeah, because you didn't ask me. <laughs> and let it's me your tell opportunity you now, if you <laughs> right, want let to. Let me tell you something interesting this morning. Bump into a guy that I knew when I worked in Moscow and he was in the Kremlin. He's still in the Kremlin. As you do. As one does. Where, where well, this? this one does anyway. This one does. It doesn't where, matter where, where it was. I was going to get coffee. Anyway, <laughs> so I said to him, 
tell me, Trump, what does, what does Putin think? What's the Kremlin? What are you guys thinking about him? And they say, well, we, we actually think that Trump could do it. And it goes like this. Uh, the people who are not voting for Hillary at the moment, voting for Sanders in, in the primaries, etc., rather than have Hillary Clinton, a woman, money, a Clinton by name, uh, they would switch their vote to the Republican, to mm. Trump. And the uh, there are people in, the, in who actually believe this could happen. Now, there's another side to this. Uh, does it bother you? No, because the Congress would sit on his head, as they do with every president, almost. But that's what they're... they're sort of How good do you think Russian intelligence is on American voting tendencies? It's very good, actually. Is it? Ever since Gromyko. Ever since Gromyko was foreign foreign minister, they are very good. And i tell you something else Why they're are they good so at. good? Uh, because they study it properly, and they think like Americans, because a lot of it is coming from the people they've actually got living as Americans, not living in, in embassies, but living as Americans hmm. in America. Now, I'll tell you one thing they've spotted, which other people are not sure they have. They think that America is about to go through a great phase of nationalism. And do you know what they base that on? Go on. You know Budweiser, the mm -hmm. beer? Mm -hmm. Budweiser is going to change its name to America. Is that right? It is. They say it's going to happen this year. We're back to the old Freedom it's, Prize, are we? Yeah, no, Something no, like that. No, no, How do you on. know that, Christopher? Uh, this, this is this is a, a little bit of speculation, is it not? Uh, no. I'll tell you, it's true. And instead of having the recipe for Budweiser <laughs> on the lid, honestly, okay. they're going to have the lyrics for the Star Spangled Banner. Now, that is nationalism. That okay. will happen, and it will happen the end of this month. They will make an announcement. Mark his words. Uh, you that's... drank it here. You drank it here. <laughs> <laughs> that's all we have time for today. Thanks to all our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS Sitrep. And never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS Sitrep. We're back same time next week. Thanks for listening from me, Kate Chabot. Bye-bye for now. Mm -hmm.